What's up, guys? Hope you're having a great day. I love talking about some of these quick-hitting value adds. What we're going to talk about today is I think a lot of people love the topic of saving on taxes. I don't know. I don't know really anybody that's like, "Eh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to save on taxes." So, it's also I think one of the most overlooked or probably one of the biggest most common mistakes that we see in working with people one-on-one is just a failure to maximize all these tax breaks that are available. So we're going to talk about some of the most overlooked ones today. I think a lot of personal finance, like many things in life, is it's more about hitting like doubles and singles and really avoiding errors. It's not as it's not as much about home runs. I mean, a lot of people home runs are kind of cool to watch and see, but they can also put you at bigger risk and, you know, make you more air prone. And so a lot of this is, you know, good sound personal finance is just avoiding those errors and, you know, getting on base. So tax breaks is definitely you know, a good example of one of those, or at least it shouldn't be, I don't think a home run. It's more of like a single or a double. I think a lot of people maybe view, especially early on in their career or in life, maybe they have, some people have a higher expectation for tax breaks than they they really are. It's more of like a single or a double. It's like, it's a good thing. Definitely you want to get on base, but it's not going to like, it's not a game changer. It's not a make or break situation. It's just a, it's much better than striking out and not getting on base. Uh, and in fact, with tax breaks, I'll point out too, like sometimes you do see these home run tax breaks, examples of uh, schemes or whatever. But a lot of times those are, that's kind of more of a warning sign. Like when we hear of a tax break, that's like, it's free money kind of, or it's like, for example, you know, you pay nothing and get, you know, free money back or like you get a tax credit for one of the common ones that's out there today is like a conservation easement. Like in other words, you invest some money in something, this tax vehicle, I'm oversimplifying it, but you invest money in this thing and then the tax savings provided by it are greater than the investment in the thing. So in other words, it's like printing money. It's like free money right away. And so that's not how, that's like a home run, but it's also a problem because that's not how the IRS rolls. Like they don't design these tax breaks to give out money because they would just give out money otherwise. It's designed, they're designing these to be very, I mean, it's very intentional, the purpose of these tax breaks. They're really trying to, you know, incentivize behaviors. They want people to for example, like invest more in retirement and education and healthcare and those sorts of things. They want to incentivize those behaviors and give you a little bit of a carrot to do that. But it's definitely not designed to be handing out money. So typically, now that example I just threw out for, uh, you know, the home run free money tax scenario, you know, technically that particular example is maybe legal. A lot of accountants will argue it's gray, I guess it's really gray, but the IRS has come out for instance, in this example and said that they're like aggressively pursuing those vehicles as a, 
you know, they're auditing them and saying that, you know, it's against, it goes against their rules or whatever. And in other words, it's a something they're going after and trying to shut down because it goes against the whole idea of the tax code. So home runs, you know, probably should raise a red flag more than anything. And what we're going to talk about, talk about today is some of the basic, you know, easy single double tax break type things that are completely worthwhile. I don't want to downplay these. Like they're still completely worthwhile. They're much better than not getting a tax break. Of course, like all things being equal, you definitely want a tax break as opposed to getting taxed. So it's definitely a wise thing to do. And uh, missing out on them is a an error in itself. So I it's and I think it's probably the most common, like I said, one of the most common mistakes we see is not maximizing these. Maybe you're doing some of these, but not all of these. So and that that's really, like I said, that's a pretty big error in itself. So we're going to talk about some of the biggest tax breaks that can sometimes come, come into play. So first one, so we're going to have five, five big tax breaks to talk about. So first one is the HSA. Assuming you're eligible for that, you have to have a qualified health plan to be able to fund this HSA. But the HSA is by far the best of all these tax breaks available, assuming you're able to fund those. If you want to understand a lot more detail about, about how the HSA works and why it's such a good vehicle, check out our episode a few back out of using your HSA to build wealth. We'll link to that um, in the notes, but I'll talk high level today. So it is a fantastic, as I said, tax shelter. Like I said, you have to be in the right sort of health plan, but the reason it's such a good tax shelter. So when you put money into an HSA, it's before tax money. So in other words, no tax going in. So it's before it avoids, it escapes income tax going in. And in some cases it escapes social security tax and Medicare tax. So it escapes taxation, income taxation on the way in which is good in itself. That's kind of like a 401k does, like a traditional 401k escapes temporarily income tax on the way in. So the HSA escapes or is not taxed on the way in. So no tax going in. And then HSAs are allowed to build. So there's no use it or lose it limitation like a lot of these health plan savings or health savings plans. HSAs you can completely build wealth in them. Uh, that's no problem. And so as you build wealth and you can invest in them, we talk about that more in the prior episode that I referred to a minute ago, but you can completely build wealth in them. And as that wealth grows, it's tax-free. So as long as it's in there, growth is tax-free. And then on the back end, when you take it out, that withdrawal is tax-free as long as it's used for a qualified healthcare expense. So if you're young, it's like, you have your entire life ahead of you. Like you're going to have a lot of healthcare bills in the future, especially when you're older. And so as long as you have future healthcare costs, like retirement healthcare costs, this HSA vehicle is a home run. It's a, it's a way to basically completely avoid taxation on it's really the only vehicle 
you can avoid taxation in all three of those areas, like tax, avoid tax going in, avoid tax as it grows and avoid tax as it comes out. As long as you're using it for qualified healthcare expenses. Now, if you don't, if you are forced to not use it for healthcare, when, as long as you're over 65, then in that scenario, it is taxed, but that just functions just like a 401k traditional 401k. So basically a worst case scenario, it's like a 401k. And if you're, if you do it right, it's much, much better than a 401k tax wise. So using your HSA to build wealth, not just using your HSA to, you know, write checks for the doctor visits, but I'm talking about using your HSA to build wealth is definitely one of the most overlooked tax breaks we see. So if you want to learn more about that, like I said, check out our prior episode where we talk more in depth. Now, if so on any of these, if you're working with us, we're going to be like, if you're working one-on-one -on -one with us, we're going to be, you know, making sure you're looking at all these sorts of things and making sure they're optimized. So, but if you have questions on any of these, whether you're working with us or not, feel free to throw those out. So second big tax break that I think people miss out on is tax loss harvesting. I think this is especially true with like the DIY investors, not... DIY is fine. Like, you know, especially if you enjoy something, I think I'm a fan of like DIY in certain areas. I think the enjoyment factor is key, but it's the hard part about DIY. It's just like hard to know all these different things. It's hard to be, it's like hard, impossible to be a jack of all trades and master it. And so with tax loss harvesting, it's a little bit more complicated or intimidating is probably a better word, but what it is when you have, so let's say you've maximized all your tax breaks or tax vehicles. We're going to talk about today, a few of them, but let's say you've maxed out all your retirement plans, your HSAs, like all the easy wins on the tax breaks for retirement and education and all those kinds of things. A lot of physicians get to a point where they've, you know, quickly maxed all those out and then they're still wanting to save on top of that. And so then you end up needing to use just a taxable, you know, plain Jane, like taxable investment vehicle, because once you've maxed all that out, as you invest, it gets taxed as it grows. So with a taxable investment vehicle, the way that works is it, as I mentioned, as it grows, there's tax implications. So one of the tax one of the taxes that you'll incur in those sorts of vehicles is called capital gains tax. So I'm going to hit the high level of this. If you want to, if you want us to dig into tax loss harvesting, we can cover it in another show, but I'll hit the high points for today. So with taxable investments, um, capital assets is what we're talking about or capital gains is what we're talking about or capital losses. So if you own, let's use a simple example. You buy Apple stock for a hundred dollars, and then you sell Apple stock for $200 in a week. So that is a $100 capital gain and it gets taxed. And so it depends on how long time period you owned it as to which exact tax treatment it is. But shorter term time periods are taxed more. Short term capital gains is what they call them. Long term are taxed a little bit less, but they're still taxed. And so on the other hand, if you buy Apple stock for 100 and then you sell it for 50, then that's a capital loss. And so tax loss harvesting, and maybe we could say more broadly, like tax efficient investing on your 
taxable investments is being more proactive about how all those taxes work and in an effort to minimize the taxation or defer the taxation. So for example, maybe you have Apple stock and you've owned it, you know, 11 months or 11, 364 days. You've owned it just shy of a year and you're going to sell it. So first of all, I would not suggest buying individual stocks, but it's a good example. If you're buying it and selling it after just shy of a year, that's short-term capital gains, which in many cases is, you know, substantially more tax, like potentially, you know, 10 plus percent tax, added tax versus just waiting a day or two, you're getting the lower tax rate. So that's one tax efficient strategy is avoiding taking short term capital gains. And even further, proactively taking capital losses. So that's where tax loss harvesting comes in. So with tax loss harvesting, when so the example of the $100 Apple stock is down to 50. In this Apple stock example, you could go ahead and sell it because it's at 50. And that triggers a loss of 50. And in that situation, that loss gets like stockpiled for you so that in the future, you can offset it with gains. Or if you don't have any gains, you can offset up to 3000 a year of income on your tax return. So basically, there's incentive tax-wise to stockpile all these losses on your taxable investments so that you can offset a little bit of income a year, the 3000 that's a little, that's a decent carrot. But on top of that, so that you can offset any short-term capital gains you have to take, because you never want to take short-term capital gains because it's a high tax rate. Plus, you can offset maybe even some long-term capital gains or maybe you own the investment for your entire lifetime. And when you pass away, it all gets wiped clean slate anyway. There's a lot of incentive to harvest. They call it tax loss harvest. These losses, you have to watch out for a few things. So this Apple example, if you, the question would be like, what do you do with the money then? You just sold it for 50 and you had it for hundred. You took the loss, great. But like, what do you do with the $50? If you buy Apple stock right back again, because you just wanted it, to keep it, say you sell it and then buy it right back a minute later, that wipes it out. You, you can't do that. They call that the wash sale rule. So you have to wait 30 days to buy back the exact same security. But there's some ways to work around that or not violate that. And the way to do it, the easy, the most common way to do that is just to buy something similar. You know, you can buy something that like is very similar to Apple stock, or if you're using ETFs, that's a much better, you know, I'm a fan of like passive ETFs, ETFs. So like very diversified ETFs, you can say the same example, it's worth a hundred and you sell it for 50, you take the $50 loss and it's the, you know, S and P 500 fund. You can buy the, you know, Vanguard total stock market as an alternative and swap it out. So it's not the exact same security. It's pretty close. It's like maybe 90% overlap, but it's not 100%. So you have to be careful not to buy the exact same security back when you do that transaction, or else you're going to be forced to wait 30 days 
to take that loss. So there, that's so. This gets a little intimidating and a little confusing for people. You know, as you hear this, I'm sure you're thinking, "Oh, it seems like a lot." So and it is. I would encourage if you're doing this yourself. I would encourage reading a lot more on this. I'm just like I said, hitting the high points. And you know, for today, the main takeaways are, especially when you're gonna be in higher tax brackets, like tax loss harvesting is a beneficial strategy. It will you know, it will translate to lowering taxes, especially when you look at long periods of time, but it does take a little work and you need to read up on it and be understanding what you're doing. Cause otherwise it's going to be very difficult or you might be prone to taking a wrong turn or whatnot. And so that's tax loss harvesting. As I mentioned at the very beginning, if you're working with us, we're like already doing these sorts of things. Like tax loss harvesting is just kind of like automatically a part of what we're looking at. So, you know, you don't need to, it's still, I think, good to understand these sorts of things and you can ask questions. It allow it helps you to ask questions the more you understand, but just so you know. So third big tax break, backdoor Roth IRAs. So if you're not, hopefully all of you, well, I, you know, I'd be shocked if all of you were doing this. So for those of you that are not doing this, this is for you. So backdoor Roth IRA is a way to indirectly fund Roth IRAs, even if your income is above the threshold for funding a Roth IRA directly. So Roth IRAs have this threshold of income where if you exceed it and it changes every year, I don't remember the exact number this year, but it's, you can Google it in five seconds, but it's, you know, around 200,000 for a couple for a married couple, or if you're single, it's a lot lower, like a hundred thousand something. But anyway, if you exceed that threshold, you're basically like out for Roth funding directly. And so you, you can, even if you're over that threshold, you can still fund a traditional IRA, even if your income is 10 million a year under the current tax laws. So you can, even if you're out on directly funding the Roth, you can still fund a traditional IRA and you can also convert that traditional IRA to Roth. So funding the traditional IRA really has in today dollar or in this year's tax return, it doesn't really affect this year tax return if you have that high income example in most cases. So it doesn't really affect, it's not going to typically affect this year's taxes. So it's kind of like neutral. And then come, sorry, my phone sometimes thinks I'm talking to it. That was my Siri saying hello. So if you're in that situation where you're, you, you're wanting to fund this, you fund the traditional IRA first, you then convert it to Roth. The conversion, there's no income limitation either. So basically you have taken a couple extra steps to indirectly fund the Roth. Um, and that's, they call it the backdoor Roth IRA. The backdoor Roth IRA is a completely non-technical term. The IRS would never come up with the backdoor terminology. Like they don't like, they hate backdoor. That implies like loophole. And so really it's just a multiple step process of funding or getting funds into a Roth IRA. And the IRS has come out, I think in 2018 saying that they are 
good with these Roth IRA, funding Roth IRAs this way. It was on the chopping block. This is 2020 as I'm recording this, but in late 2021, it was about to, most people thought it was going to get X'd from the tax code, but uh, that for the time being, that tax, big tax proposal died off. So as of now, they're still fair game and a very good tax break. You can, but it does take a little bit of work. If you are doing this yourself, I would encourage checking out our podcast where we talk about a little bit more in depth of how it works. I'll link to that in the show notes. If you're working with us, we're going to bring it up and we will take care of it for you. So backdoor Roth IRA number three. Number four would be business expenses. This is for those of you that have a side hustle or you're self-employed, maybe you're in emergency medicine, 1099 setup, you're just getting paid cash. And so te you're technically self-employed or maybe you're working at a hospital and you're, you have a side hustle doing moonlighting and you're getting 1099 income. The key for this to come into play is you have to be self-employed in some capacity, you know, have a business or have a side income that's considered self-employment. You can't be an, being an employee does not work. So if you're moonlighting, but they consider you an employee, this does not work. You have to be self-employed. And the big, easy way to figure that out is typically if they're not withholding tax on that income and there's no, and they're, you know, they're not considering you an employee in that case, that's a good sign that you're self employed. If you're unsure or either way, talk to your tax accountant to confirm the status if there's any uncertainty about this. But this is for all the people that potentially have that self-employment income. And so business expenses, when you're self-employed, that's when business expenses come into play. There's all kinds of things. You're totally, completely legit in the tax code, able to write off as business expenses, which is a good, solid, you know, it's not a so going back to the home runs and single doubles, it's not like free money. It's not a home run. But so it's not a reason to spend. A lot of people get that kind of sideways. It's like, oh, okay, I should buy this, you know, brand new, fancy Tesla, Porsche, whatever car, and it'd be my business vehicle because of the tax breaks. That doesn't fly. Like that doesn't justify spending a ton of money on anything. You should not like buy things because of the tax breaks. But for things you already do or that are already a part of your business or that you can consider part of your business, that is a, you know, easy single double, you know, you might as well. It's more like not doing it is making, you know, an error that's going to hurt you. So I'll throw out a few examples of some of these. These are going to be big time dependent on what the, what the setup is for you. Before I go through these, I would, this is a... When you have this kind of income, this is probably one of the best times if you're not already working with an accountant to hire one. And one of the first questions for them needs to be like, what are these for me? Like, let's talk about all the deductions for my business. What should I be writing off or what could I be writing off or, you know, how does this work and that work? And so, you know, that's that's definitely where you can get a little bit more specific to your circumstances. Talk to your accountant about your specific situation always for this. So business expenses, some of the common examples, you know, maybe you spend time in your home, you know, doing work on it or, you know, setting up appointments or scheduling things or whatever. So home office, you can deduct a portion of your home expenses 
and consider them home office expenses. Car, like travel. So when you travel from one location to another, it has to be business place to business place. There's mileage deduction, or you can deduct part of your vehicle expenses. A lot of people get confused about the car thing. They're like, okay, I'm going to buy the car in my business, and then I'm going to use it still how I was before, like mostly personal, but partly business, and I'm going to deduct all of it. It doesn't work that way. You can, they they allow you to deduct based on the percentage of it that you use for your business. So if you're using a car 100% for your business, you know, that's a, you can deduct 100% of the expenses. And you can either deduct the expense of the car, or you can deduct a flat mileage rate. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Also, like any of the <clears throat> education you know, continuing education and related expenses. So this is where it gets, so all this tax stuff can get a little gray. So this is where it can get gray. Like maybe you go to a conference in Hawaii and spend 15 days there and deduct the entire cost of everything as a business expense because it was a conference for your continuing education. That's pushing it like to the extreme. That's probably, you know, not, that's definitely not, unless you were doing, business the entire time and everything related to it was for the purposes of your business. Most cases, that's not true. So the key with that example, when you're talking about education and deducting that is whether or not it's part of business. So if you're, you know, hanging out or you decide to go ski or something, that's not a business expense typically, but like definitely the continuing education aspect and the, some of the costs around that, you know, at least a portion of it can be a deduction. Um, and then there's all kinds of other little things like base. So, you know, computers, if you use a computer for your business, your cell phone, I think the gist of it would be if you have that income source, I would just be thinking about all the possible things that could be a deduction and then talk to your accountant and run those by them and ask then on top of that, what are additional things? And I think that would be a good thing. It's not, it's very common that people are missing little things here and there. I've missed little things here and there and, and over the years have learned. So it's a good exercise to go through that if you're in that situation. Last big tax break that uh, often is overlooked would be the work retirement plan, the tax sheltered work retirement plans. So the most common ones are like the 401k slash 403b, making sure those are maxed out. That's key. on top of that, like the 457b can be a good tax shelter. We have we covered this in a prior episode. Can you max out both your 403b and 457 where we talk about like coordinating the two together? So check that out if you want to understand that more. But for most physicians, it's beneficial to make sure you're maximizing at least the 401k and 403 and the employee max is 20,500 per year. And so that's a typically a minimum, you know, trying to max that out is a good thing, especially if your income is higher. And then on top of that, typically the 457B, especially if it's a governmental 457 can be, can make sense to max out as well. And that's a separate 20,500 the key is making sure that's a governmental plan. And if it's not, you want to be a little more cautious. And then on top of that, there's sometimes extra plans like defined benefit or, you know, old school pension plans that it gets a little more complicated in terms of coordinating all these. But I think it's helpful or the gist of it is if, especially if you're higher income, making sure you're like maximizing all those plans, like combined is the idea. 
and you want to, you know, and that's typically a yearly thing is just kind of, and sometimes they can conflict with one another, especially if you have multiple employers. Okay. So that's the, that's the list. Those are, I think the five biggest, most overlooked tax breaks. Like I said, if you're working with us one-on-one, we'll definitely be regularly bringing these up. We'll make sure you're maxing these out, you know, unless you're <laughs> refusing to or whatnot, you know, we're going to be on that. If you're doing this yourself, I would encourage you reading up, you know, especially on some of these that were, are a little bit more complicated. If you want us to dig in deeper, we're happy to. I enjoy talking about this stuff. I just want to make sure it's helpful for you guys. So definitely let me know if you want to go that direction. All right. Hope, I hope this was helpful and I look forward to talking again next time.